Friends, let me now invite you to turn with me in your copy of the scriptures to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 so that we might behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let's turn our eyes to Jesus to see his glory revealed to us in his word. And as we do that, let's pray that his spirit would transform our hearts, that we might labor in faith, in hope, in love, and do that well to the glory of God, even as we wait for the return of our King. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we'll look at verses 50 to 58. Let's ask the Lord for his help as we approach his word. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for the salvation that is ours in Christ Jesus our Lord. Teach us now from your word how to think rightly about so great a salvation. Help us to think and live in light of the coming glory. Help our discouraged hearts to find rest in our Savior. And strengthen us that we might serve one another with a renewed commitment to make your glory known through the church and among all the nations. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Friends, weddings are always a wonderful time to reflect upon God's grace to us in Christ, aren't they? And it was certainly that way yesterday at Sandra and Sham's wedding in Abu Dhabi. Uh, both the bride and the groom looked radiant, and so did all the guests who showed up in their many splendored outfits. All of them, might I add, appropriate for a celebration of God's covenant-keeping love as displayed in marriage. Even little Jeremy Thomas showed up in his finest suit. Friends, the Bible begins with a wedding with God himself creating and giving a bride to the first man, Adam, and it ends with a wedding, the wedding supper of the last Adam, the man from heaven, the Lord Jesus himself. And when Christ comes back for his church, his bride, we are told that she will be clothed with beauty and splendor. And of course, we know what that means, what those garments are. On one hand, uh, those who believe are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. This is what justifies sinners before a holy God. You see that in Galatians 3.27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. On the other hand, having been united to Christ by the Spirit through faith, we no longer desire to wear the wretched rags of wickedness and holiness, uh, wickedness and worldliness, but are eager to be clothed in greater Christ-likeness. And so we are told in Colossians 3.12, put on then, that's the language of wearing clothes, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. After all, the bride now desires to adorn herself with what pleases her Savior. For the beauty of the bride's garments are produced by a heart that is trusting in Christ. This is the sort of wedding garment that God is interested in. See, the garments of holiness are worn by people who are trusting in Christ alone. So in Matthew chapter 22, we are told this interesting story, Jesus compared the kingdom of God to a wedding feast that a king gave for his son. In that parable, we are told that when all the guests were gathered in the hall, the king came in to look at the guests. And he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 22, 11-13 Eternal condemnation will be the destiny of those who are not clothed properly. Eternal condemnation 
will be the destiny of those who are not clothed properly. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the church's great hope is that not only will Jesus through his spirit transform our hearts, our character, as we trust in the gospel, not only will he change our hearts to walk in the obedience of faith, but he will also one day complete that project by transforming our bodies. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 49 promises us this. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Not only is God working on our hearts to make us more like Jesus, but his work of image restoration will also involve our physical bodies. When Christ comes, we will be glorified. We will receive new resurrection bodies that will be suited, properly fitted, appropriate to life on the new earth. We will bear the image of the man from heaven. Beloved, when we die, our dead bodies will be buried like naked seeds in the ground. But when we are raised, we will be clothed with glory. God in his wisdom and power will give to you a resurrection body as he has chosen. We will be further clothed with splendor and immortality. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, 4-5. For while we are still in this tent, this earthly body... We groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So our new resurrection bodies will be imperishable and glorified free from sin and weakness it, it, weakness, it will be a spiritual body. Now, a spiritual body doesn't mean that it will be immaterial, as though we will have a ghostly body. No, a spiritual body is still a physical body. A spiritual body is one that is animated or made alive by the spirit. The difference between the natural and the spiritual is the difference between ordinary human life now versus life in the spirit with our new resurrection bodies then. Now, throughout this chapter, chapter 15, Paul has been making the case for our resurrection from the dead on the grounds or on the basis of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And last week we saw how he addresses two questions which perhaps may have been lurking in the minds of some Corinthians who were denying the resurrection and sinning as a result. So question number one, if you remember, he asked, how are the dead raised? Answer, by the wisdom and power of God. Just as he spoke in creation, so also he will speak upon establishing the new creation. Question number two, with what kind of body do they come? Answer, with a body just like Jesus' resurrection body. And in these next few verses that we're about to look at, Paul brings his entire argument to a close by teaching us how this theology of the resurrection of the dead ought not to only change the way we think about our salvation, but also change the way we think about our ministry together in a local church. So our eschatology, our study of the end times, is essential for our discipleship. The whole point of his argument is to get to verse 58. So look at verse 58. Here it is. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So theology properly understood must always be applied. Must always be applied. And so as we look forward to the future with hope, here are three lessons that we can learn from this passage as a congregation. Number one, we must be transformed. Number two, we will triumph. And number three, because of those two wonderful truths, we must thrive. We must thrive spiritually. We must be transformed. We will triumph. And because of those two truths, we must thrive. But first, we must ask, think with me, after all that Paul has taught us about the nature of the new resurrection, 
what more could he possibly have to say? Right? So many verses. What's he going to say now? Well, look at verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Now, the kingdom of God is God's saving rule in Christ over his people in his place. Therefore, the kingdom of God proper is the new heavens and the new earth, where God will be all in all. His kingdom is not of this world. It is of the world to come. Israel in the Old Testament was a type or picture of this coming kingdom. This kingdom knows no end. It is an everlasting kingdom. This kingdom has been inaugurated by the coming of Jesus, by his death and resurrection, and by the giving of the Spirit at Pentecost. It is already here, but it is not fully here. We as Christians live between the overlap of these two ages, between this present age that is passing away and the age to come, which is already here. But we long for and we pray for the consummation of the kingdom, which is why we pray, your kingdom come. And so when Paul speaks of the kingdom of God, he's speaking of the new heavens and the new earth, the consummation of all things where the dwelling place of God will be with man, where we will dwell with him forever on the new earth. Now concerning this, Paul says emphatically, yes, yes, we will be like Jesus. But now I want you to think about the gospel that I proclaim to you, that gospel of the kingdom. And I want you to get this, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, he says. Now when he says flesh and blood cannot inherit, he's not saying physical bodies cannot enter. Physical bodies cannot dwell on the new earth. That would go against everything that he has said up to this point. No, that's not what he means. When he says the flesh and blood of this age, he means uh, the, our physical bodies as it relates to the now, this age. Our bodies in their weakness, in their sin, in their decaying, dying state. In this state, we cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Now, in the Old Testament, every time that word inherit or inheritance is used, it's always used with reference to the promised land. This was what the people of God were to inherit in the future. But as you read the progress of redemptive history, we come to learn that the promised land was a type or a picture of the heavenly Canaan, the new earth. This is what Abraham realized, and the writer to the Hebrews tells us that. Listen to this. By faith, Abraham went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land. Why? For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Or take Hebrews eleven sixteen. But as it is, those Old Testament saints, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Jesus confirms this for us when he tells us in Matthew 5, 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Or Paul in Romans 4, 13, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through righteousness of faith. Now friends, typically when we think about who gets to enter the kingdom of God, we know that the unrighteous will not go there. Those who keep on sinning without repentance, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. So look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul has already told us that. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. This is how you used to be, some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. But now he seems to be saying, that's wonderful that you have been born again and are growing in sanctification, but that's not enough. Yes, we know that unless a person is born again, he cannot see, he cannot 
entered the kingdom of God. Paul says, yes, our redemption certainly begins with us being born again. It begins with our regeneration. But without glorification, there's no place for you at the wedding banquet of the Lamb. Flesh and blood, even flesh and blood that is growing in sanctification, cannot inherit the kingdom. Nor does the perishable, our corruptible bodies, inherit the imperishable. Those two things are not compatible. See, we don't often reflect upon how important our glorification is for our final salvation. How important it is in order for us to dwell in our heavenly home. Friends, you see, bad people don't go to heaven. That's obvious. Good people don't go to heaven. According to this verse, perfect people, sinless people go to heaven. So if your unbelieving friends tell you, oh, God will understand that no one's perfect, he'll make room. No, he won't. Sinners cannot dwell in the presence of a holy God. Even the most sanctified Christian, with the presence of indwelling sin, uh, with a body that is affected by the consequences of sin in this fallen world, cannot dwell on the new earth. Paul says we must be changed. We must be radically changed. Brothers, I hope this does three things for you. One, in light of this truth, I hope you can see how serious even the smallest ounce of sin is. And two, I hope this will cause you to marvel and fear the holy majesty of the God we worship. I hope this will cause you to marvel at the holiness and the loveliness of His new creation. And three, I hope this causes you to be in awe of His grace to us in Christ. We must be changed. We must be transformed by the grace of God Himself. And this He has done, hasn't He? He has done already through the cross and resurrection of our Savior. By grace we have been saved through faith. Ephesians 1.11 In Christ we have obtained an inheritance. When we heard the gospel and turned from our sin and put our faith in Christ, when we believed because of the powerful work of the Spirit, we were sealed with the Spirit. And the final transformation that is necessary for us, for us who are growing in increasing Christ-likeness, for us who are pursuing the obedience of faith and struggling with our sin, God will also do. He will do by His grace because of Christ. The indwelling Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. That's Ephesians 1.16. You see, what God has promised, He has publicly demonstrated in the raising up of His Son. Just as He was raised, we too will also be raised. But we must be changed or we cannot enter our heavenly dwelling. This needs to happen whether we are alive at the time of Christ's return or whether we are dead, asleep. Look at verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Paul says, behold, look, listen to this mystery. Now, in contemporary usage, a mystery is an unknown quantity. Something that is to be investigated or discovered or figured out. But in the New Testament, a mystery is a revelation from God. A truth that was previously hidden, but has now been made known to us in Christ. Made known to us in the light of His new covenant work. So here's the mystery. Paul says, we shall not all sleep. Not all of us will be dead at Christ's return. But we shall all be changed. Not all of us will be dead, but all of us will be changed. A miraculous transformation must take place in order for us to inherit eternal life in the new earth. But unlike our sanctification, it's not going to take a long time. Look at the text. How will we be changed? Verse 52, in a moment. The Greek word is atomo. It's where we get the word atom from. This is something so small, it cannot be divided further. There's nothing smaller than this duration. It will be in an instant. 
Well, could you give us an example, Paul, something to compare it with? Well, Paul says it will be in the twinkling of an eye. Paul says, look at me, now blink. That's how long it will take to transform your body from an earthly body to a heavenly body, to a new resurrection body. Whether you're living or dead, that's how long it's going to take. And when exactly will this happen? Look at the text. At the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. Now in the ancient Near East, trumpets were blown to summon an army to get ready for battle or to alert people uh, to coming danger. But it was also blown to announce victory, to announce the arrival of the king. So think about Exodus 19 verse 16 when God's presence descended on Mount Sinai on the third day. There was a loud trumpet blast to signal his arrival. And Paul links the sound of the trumpet with the second coming of Jesus. It is at his coming that the dead will be raised and given new resurrection bodies. And living Christians will also be given new resurrection body. It all happens at his return. We see the sequence, don't we? In 1 Corinthians 15, 23 to 26. Look at verses 23 to 26. You see it as clear as day and without any confusion. Each in his own order. First the resurrection of Jesus and then our resurrection. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to the Father after destroying all his enemies. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Until then he must reign as Messiah. So he's reigning now. And when he returns at the sound of the last trumpet, the last does not mean last in a long series of trumpets. No, the word last here means eschatos. This is the end. The trumpet is signaling the end. The end is here. The end of all things. That's when resurrection bodies will be given to the dead in Christ. That's when resurrection bodies will be given to the alive in Christ. The end is when Christ delivers the kingdom to the Father after destroying his enemies. The last enemy to be destroyed being death itself. It all happens upon his return. Now here are two other passages of scripture that support this. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 13 to 17. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 13 to 17. <clears throat> but we do not want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep referring to the dead in Christ. Paul says, I want you to know this so that you may not grieve as others, as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Isn't that interesting? When we die, according to 2 Corinthians 5, 8, our souls get to be with Jesus. Believers will be in his presence waiting for the second coming, waiting for our new resurrection bodies. No one is going to miss out on anything, says Paul. The dead in Christ are alive in his presence and they will come with him to be physically raised and reunited with their bodies, new resurrection bodies. God is bringing them. Look at verse 15, 1 Thessalonians 4. <clears throat> For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. This word coming or perusia was sometimes used as a term to describe the visit of a high-ranking official or king or emperor. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. So this is a very loud and public event. This is a very loud and public event. God's victory over death is going to be evident to all. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them. So they are given new resurrection bodies. We will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. 
And then together we will do this. We will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. This word meet, apentesis, was used to describe what Greco-Roman citizens would do when the king would come to visit their city. Uh, they would leave the gates of the city. They would go out and meet him. They would go out and meet him, not to leave with him and live somewhere else, but to welcome him and escort him back to the city. And so this meeting the Lord in the air is a sort of welcoming party for Christ's triumphant return. We will meet him and live with him forever on the new earth. Here's another passage. Go over to 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians 1 verses 9 to 10. Now here Paul speaks of the judgment of unbelievers. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. When will that happen? Verse 10, when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints. Beloved, on that day we shall all be changed. We shall be changed and this transformation will be like a change of clothing. It will be like a change of clothing. Look at verse 53 of 1 Corinthians 15. So let's go back to 1 Corinthians 15. Look at verse 53. For this perishable body must put on. That's the language of dressing. You put it on. This perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. So make no mistake. What we will put on will be far more glorious than what we now possess. <clears throat> we will be clothed with the splendor and dignity of immortality. We will live forever with the Lord, never to die again. Our Lord is making all things new. Beloved, everything that you strive to do as a Christian in this body, one day you will do better. We will no longer struggle with sin. We will commune with the Lord better. It will be face to face. Our capacities to love, to delight in what is good, to work, to rejoice, all of it will be unimaginably better. The earth will be new and glorious and life in the presence of the Lord will be sweet. It will be meaningful. It will be endlessly adventurous and fascinating. Every day that passes by, brings us closer to this day. See, for the believer, the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. So as you grow older, don't become crankier. Become more joyful. Long for that day. We're almost home. You can almost hear the wedding celebration about to begin. You know, I hear the food's really good. I hear the wine's really good. The company will be even better. You, know, you are going to love working as a citizen of the new earth. Because I heard that our new employer, our king, he pays really well. He pays better than what we deserve. And he's always perfectly just. I think it was Richard Sibbs who wrote, God's last works are his best works. The new heaven and the new earth are the best. The second wine that Christ created himself was the best. Spiritual things are better than natural. A Christian's last is his best. God will have it so for the comfort of Christians that every day they live they may think my best is not yet, my best is yet to come. That every day they rise, they may think, I am nearer heaven one day than I was before. I am nearer death and therefore nearer to Christ. What a solace is this to a gracious heart. Beloved, at any point, if you're tempted to think, oh, if I spend my life serving the Lord, work, walking in the obedience of faith, prioritizing what God has called me to do as a member of this body, then when will I get the time to relax? And enjoy the legitimate pleasures that this world offers. When will I get to watch TV? Or go trekking? Brothers, remember this. It is not wrong to desire a break or enjoy it. But do so without neglecting what God has clearly 
called you to do. We don't get a break from being a Christian. This is our identity. Remember that in eternity, in addition to our joyful fellowship with God and with one another, we will have a sin-free, natural, disaster-free world to explore and enjoy. Just imagine that. At the Father's right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. So don't worry about your short life or your bucket list. Pursue faithfulness. In Jesus and because of Jesus, we will triumph over sin and death. And a world of love and joy awaits us. Which brings me to, uh, to my second point. We will triumph. Look at verse 50, verses 54 to 55. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal, that which cannot die, that which can die, puts on immortality, that which cannot die, when the mortal puts on immortality, just imagine that. A day is coming when you will live forever. And when that transformation happens, Paul says, Then shall come to pass the saying, the logos, that is written. Now keep in mind, and even though all the promises of God are fulfilled in Christ, this is the moment when this will be realized. When we are raised from the dead, then shall come to pass this word, death is swallowed up in victory. Paul quotes from Isaiah 25, verse 8, that passage that Pastor Will read from. In that chapter, Isaiah looks forward to a time when God will conquer his enemies and judge the wicked. On that day, the Lord will throw an end-time feast on a mountain. For his people from every nation, he will save his people and he will swallow up or destroy death forever. Isaiah tells us that death casts a shadow over everyone. But on that day, people will rejoice because death will no, be no more. It will be no more. The Lord will remove the reproach of his people and he will wipe away all their tears. See, this is the day that the Lord's people look forward to. And Paul says on that day, that'll be the day that the dead are raised, when we will be transformed. The last enemy, death, will be destroyed. In the new world, there will be only joy and comfort. No griefs, no sorrows, no occasions to cause you physical or emotional pain. You see, in this age, in this age, Death swallows up everything. But one day, death itself will be swallowed up. Will be swallowed up by the transformative grace of God. And so Paul borrows words from the prophet Hosea to taunt, make fun of death itself. Death is personified as one who has been defeated and God is the victor. Look at verse 55. He says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? You see, death bites but it's lost its teeth. It's like a snake that has been defanged. In the context of Hosea 13, where these words are taken from, God promises judgment for His wayward people. But in the midst of promising judgment, we also hear these words of grace. I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol, that's the grave, I shall redeem them from death. Oh, death, where are your plagues? Oh, Sheol, where is your sting? You see, Paul sees that promise of redemption fulfilled in Jesus Christ and realized in the lives of believers on the day of His coming. And so Paul celebrates this victory that is ours in Christ over death. Since He triumphed over death, all those who are in union with Him will also triumph. We turn our eyes to his resurrection morning. We see Christ the lion awake. What a glorious dawn. Fear of death is gone. Friends, throughout human history, every person, every sinner has been held captive by the fear of death. It is as old as humanity itself. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God, they not only spiritually died, they also began to die Physically. See, physical death is the outward sign that sinners have been eternally and spiritually alienated from God. Death and decay came upon creation. 
and all mankind. It came about as a result of God's judgment on, sin on sinners. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. Death comes only to sinners. We have all disobeyed God's good and righteous law. The law of God is like a mirror that shows us that we have sinned and have fallen short of His glory. The law, the law condemns us before God. And because of this, we will one day stand before a holy God who will condemn us for all eternity. The Bible calls this the second death. See, this is why death stings. This is why death stings. It, it only confirms this truth that God's wrath awaits the wicked upon Christ's return. And that separation will be made permanent if people are not in Christ. And this is what Paul says in the next verse. Look at the next verse, verse 56. The sting of death is sin. Death is fearful. It has a sting because it is a result of our sin which will lead to eternal condemnation. But he also says, and the power of sin is the law. Since the purpose of the law reveals to us what righteousness looks like, it condemns us before God because we cannot live up to it. See, the sinner is neither willing nor able to submit to God's law, and therefore the law declares us guilty and worthy of death. See, this is what Paul means when he says, the power of sin is the law. Sin uses what is good, the law, to bring about our death. Paul says it like this in Romans 7, 11, For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. Friends, this is how Scripture describes our fallenness, our rebellion. We are perishing. We're perishing. But the good news of the gospel is that God, being rich in mercy, made a way for sinners to be forgiven of their sins and reconciled to Himself. The God who has no beginning and no end, the uncreated, uncaused, unchanging, almighty God of the universe to whom we owe our, all our worship, but instead have rejected this God, took on human flesh and entered our sinful world in the person of Jesus to save us from perishing. He became like us in every way except without sin. And he perfectly obeyed God, God's law and then he died on the cross in the place of sinners, in the place of lawbreakers. He took the penalty of sinners upon himself so that whoever repents of their sin and puts their trust in him may not perish, but have eternal life. This Jesus died, he was buried, and on the third day he rose from the dead, proving to all that not only was his sacrifice for sin accepted by God, but also that he was who he said he was, the sinless son of God. The death he died, he died for our sins and not his own. This is why death had no claim on him, no hold on him. He rose from the dead with a new resurrection body and he ascended into heaven demonstrating that it is possible for a human body, a glorified one, to dwell in a heavenly realm. See, that's what the resurrection of Jesus proves to us. Yes, it is possible for you to be glorified and dwell with God in a heavenly realm forever. His resurrection ensures new life, eternal life to all who repent and believe in Him. And this is how the writer to the Hebrews explains why the Son took on flesh. Hebrews 2, 14-15 Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So friend, if you've not put your trust in Jesus, I urge you to repent of your sins and put your trust in Christ now. If you don't, the sting of death still remains. And when that trumpet sounds, the wrath of God will be poured out on all who have rejected Christ. So flee from the wrath to come. Turn to Christ and be saved from the power of sin. Be saved from the fear of death. And for those of us who have trusted in Christ, the sting of death is gone. God's Spirit 
abides with us. We have been made alive in Christ. God has done this so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That's Ephesians 2.7. You see, death is no longer a terrifying enemy for the believer. Death is no longer a terrifying enemy who's going to drag you down into the pits of hell. No, it has lost its sting. It has lost its sting because we know one who has not only paid our penalty, not only provided our righteousness, not only purified our hearts, but in him and through him we will also triumph. The sting of sin is death and the power of sin is the law. Look at verse 57. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of what Christ has done. See, death is no longer an adversary. Now, I want to clarify one thing. There's nothing good about death. There's nothing dignified about, a death, about death. Death is certainly an enemy. Uh, we should despise it. But for the believer, I want you to understand, because of Christ's triumph over death, death no longer stings like an adversary. But it aids us like a servant, bringing us into the presence of our sweet Savior, who will bring us with Him to give us new resurrection bodies on the day of His return. So when we die, brothers, we can say in faith, calmly and confidently, we can say, just as Stephen did, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. You know, if you want to know the strength of a man's, the strength of a man's convictions concerning his hope, go watch him on his deathbed. Beloved, one day, you will have a divine appointment with death. How will you fare? What will be your confidence? Beloved, may I suggest to you that unless you die daily to yourself, trusting in the gospel, you cannot die well in faith. You cannot finish the race unless you have fought the good fight. You cannot hope to triumph over death and live forever unless you are triumphing consistently and significantly and regularly over your sin. In resurrection power, even now. In the face of suffering and death and loss, Christians have this balm of resurrection hope that we can rub onto our aching hearts. So let the truth of Christ's triumph and your own future triumph Help you see your sorrows in a different light. This is why the hymn writer says, and we can say, I fear no foe with thee at hand to bless. Ills have no weight and tears no bitterness. Where is death sting? Where grave thy victory? I triumph still if thou abide with me. Did you notice in the text that Paul gives thanks because the victory is given to us. Look at the text. The defeat of death, this triumph that is ours, is a gift of grace. It's not a human accomplishment. It is not earned. Friends, there will be a happily ever after, but it will have nothing to do with your acknowledgements, your accomplishments, or mine. It'll have nothing to do with you or me so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Friends, it is this assurance of our resurrection and the certainty of our triumph in Christ, these mysteries, these spirit-inspired truths ought to cause us to thrive spiritually in the present. Which brings us to our third and final point. We must thrive. Look at verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers. Now, I don't want to pass over that too quickly. He calls them my beloved brothers. Brothers and sisters, as you read these words concerning your future and my future, what is this a demonstration of, if not of God's love to us in Christ? See, the reason Paul addresses these Corinthians as beloved brothers and the reason I address you as beloved is because that is what you are objectively in Christ, He has loved you. You are beloved. 
When John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, when He demonstrated His love in this way, He so loved the world that He gave His only Son so that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. This is what eternal life looks like. His saving love will glorify your bodies and make them suited to life everlasting on the new earth. Therefore, in light of this coming transformation and triumph. Look at the text. He says, be steadfast, immovable. This means be firm and unwavering. Don't be shaken. If, if you are shaken, you won't persevere till the end. And if you don't persevere till the end, you remember what he said at the beginning of the chapter, you have believed in vain. You know, during World War II, after D-Day, the Allied soldiers fought many battles and kept pressing on because they knew that the decisive battle had been won. And it was the reality of D-Day that encouraged the men to keep fighting with zeal until V-Day came, when the war was over. And so if you are ever discouraged in your faith, if you ever find yourself battling temptations that seem too strong, let me encourage you to read 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Read it, pray over it, and ask the Lord to fill you with resurrection hope and resurrection power to overcome your sin and temptation. But that's not all. The promise of our transformation and triumph ought to increase our zeal for ministry in the congregation. Paul says, be always abounding in the work of the Lord. Did you see that? Paul doesn't want the Corinthians to think, yes, we should set our minds on things above and be completely useless on earth below. Now, it'll all be great in the end, so let's just sit on our hands and wait for the trumpet to blow. That's not what Paul expects. Brothers, heavenly mindedness ought to produce an abundance of hard labor, godly ministry. We see this, we see this in Paul's own life, don't we? 1 Corinthians 15.10 But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Beloved, if someone were to look at your life, would they see a man or woman who is abounding in the work of the Lord? Or do you claim these promises of transformation and triumph as your own and yet do the bare minimum? If no one does it, then maybe I'll help. Is that your policy? Or would we see a life, would we see someone that is active in using their spiritual gifts in building up the body, eagerly discipling others? eagerly speaking the truth in love, helping one another to say no to cultural thinking in order to put on the mind of Christ. Beloved, is your greatest concern to see people grow in spiritual discernment? Are you troubled when you don't see it? Are you eager to see others apply the gospel to their marriages and to the pursuit of sexual purity and faithfulness in their workplaces? Are you eager to maintain unity on the foundation of the gospel? Do you strive and labor to see God glorified in corporate worship? Are you denying yourself to serve and edify one another in love? Do you give cheerfully and sacrificially to further this work? Are you abounding in the work of the Lord or are, or are you doing the bare minimum? As far as Paul is concerned, the grace of our coming transformation and the grace of our triumph produces a lively faith, a faith that works. It is a faith that works with this knowledge, knowing this. Look at the text. Here's why we ought to thrive, why we ought to abound in the Lord's work of building up His church, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You abound in the work of the Lord, knowing this, being fully confident of this, that your labor is not in vain. So what's all of this going to profit you? All these hours, all this energy invested into the lives of others, all those times when you feel tired or emotionally drained because you drove all the way to Abu Dhabi to serve at a member's wedding 
because you sat down once again with someone who can't seem to see their sin. Or once again, you're having that familiar conversation with that discouraged sister who has yet again made a foolish decision. Or you're getting ready to read a book or study the Bible with a brother. You've been doing it for seven years now and his spiritual growth seems really, really slow. Brothers and sisters, none of your labors will be in vain. Ongoing works of sanctification will lead to glorification. If Christ were to return today, that brother who is growing slowly will instantly be glorified. And you will see the reward of your labors. What a gracious Savior we serve. Charles Spurgeon once wrote, To labor through a blessed day and then at nightfall to go home and to receive the wages of grace. Is there anything dark and dismal about that? God forgive you that you ever thought so. If you are the Lord's child, I invite you to look at this homecoming in the face until you change your thought and see no more in it of gloom and dread, but a very heaven of hope and glory. Beloved, of all the people on the planet, Christians should be the most hopeful, most secure and assured about our futures. Beloved, you will be perfectly and beautifully clothed for the wedding supper of the Lamb. So rejoice and be glad. Roll up your sleeves. Open up your homes. Spread out a meal. Open up your Bibles. Engage in meaningful gospel conversations. Pray together and be thankful. None of it will be in vain. God raised the Lord and He will also raise us up in power. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word that gives us hope. Lord, we look forward to that day when we will be raised and that when we will be with our Savior forever. And on that day, O oh Lord, we will not marvel at our new resurrection bodies. The bride will not eye her garment, but will look at her dear bridegroom's face. We will not gaze at glory, but look at our Savior's face. We will delight in Him and delight in each other's company. O oh Lord, would you hasten that day? And we pray, O oh Lord, as long as we're waiting, that we would be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. We pray that you would fill us with your spirit and strengthen us so, so that we may do just that. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.